Oh, take your Bibles. What a privilege it is to say that. Take your Bibles and turn to, to Mark chapter 2. We're so blessed to have so many different copies of the Word of God, unlike some people groups. Mark chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Let us give attention to God's Word this morning. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they uh, thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning uh, to listen to your word. Lord, we come to you with your word spread uh, before us, asking you to speak the same good news you spoke to the paralyzed man and, and preached to the crowd that day in Capernaum. Grant to us, Lord, ears to hear and hearts to receive your word. For it is in your name that we ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. Now whether we realize it or not, every person alive has a world view. They have a way that they think about the world, how they view the world. If you would, you could say they it's sort of the glasses through which they, they look at the world and perceive things. And every worldview answers at least three questions, whether it's consciously or, or unconsciously. And that is this. How did we get here? What went wrong? And what is the solution? Now, for the Christian, we sort of put it in these three categories. Creation, fall, and redemption, <coughs> right? Uh, but for others, they might categorize it differently. And what I want to do this morning is to address, not answer completely, but just to address the second question as we ask this question, what's wrong with our world? What's wrong with our world? Of, of course, the answer that you would get would vary depending on who you talk to. Some people would say, well, the problem with our world is disease. Maybe things like cancer and other diseases that we, uh, we don't know how to solve. And so they dedicate them, their lives to such things. Others might say, no, actually the bigger problem is famine and hunger and poverty. 
And so they dedicate their lives to those things. Others say it's terrorism and war. Others might say, whether they're joking or not, well, it's those politicians in Washington. That's our problem. If we could just get those straightened out, then we'd be all set. And of course, the list can go on and on and on, depending on who you talk to. And, and questions like this may at first seem sort of somewhat philosophical, but I, I would suggest to you that these are things that we wrestle with every day of our lives. Um, we, we do. Now, we may not ask where do we come from, but the whole thing of what's wrong with my life and how do I fix that is something that's ever before us. And so I wanted you just to think this morning, what is your biggest problem? What, what is your greatest need in life? What would you like to see fixed in your life? Now, for some people, as they think about that, they may say, well, you know, the future and what it holds, that's probably my greatest difficulty. Maybe it's economic uncertainty, not knowing what's going to happen uh, in, in our country and with the economics. Maybe you're a young person and you're wondering, you know, I'm out of college or out of high school and I wonder, can I get a job? And if so, can I get a job that will be good enough to, to meet my financial needs? It, it may be you're just wondering about the direction of our country or, or even maybe you're really not so concerned about yourself, but you're really concerned about your kids and your grandkids and you're wondering, what's this world going to be like for them? For others, uh, their greatest need may be their family problems. Maybe it's uh, marital problems. You look really good on Sunday morning, but during the week you find yourself fighting more and more with your spouse and you're, you're having great difficulties. Or, or maybe you're a young person and you're having difficulty with your parents. Or parents, maybe it's that wayward child or grandchild. Or, or maybe it's really none of those things. Maybe it's more a sense of loneliness that you're, you're waiting for a spouse. You really thought the Lord would have brought a husband or a wife into your life by now, but he hasn't done that and you feel a sense of great loneliness. Or, or maybe you've had a spouse and that spouse has died and, and you just you remember those days when your spouse was alive and, and you just wish you could have one more day with that person. You love them so much and you miss them so much that there's just a hole in your heart. It may be financial difficulties, it may be peer pressure, health concerns, you know, maybe your body's not working like it used to. I can experience, I experience that more and more, believe me, the older I get. But it may be even a life-threatening illness. You know, maybe you went to the doctor and you received news that you didn't expect. You know, maybe it's even life itself. You know, some people here this morning, whether it's here in church or on the live stream, you may be thinking, you know, life itself just seems to be more than I can handle. I, I've really wondered and seriously considered whether I need to just end it all and just take my life. But no matter what you're facing, I'm here to tell you that God cares for you. God cares for you. And that's why He has you here. That's why He has you here, that you might hear what He has to say to you this morning. And so no matter what you're facing, God cares for you. And really, the Gospel of Mark is sort of that kind of letter that's written to a group of uh, Christians in Rome, right? That are uh, enduring great suffering and trials, most likely under Nero, from all that we can tell. So they encountered pain, they encountered death. And uh, so Mark writes this letter to them, these Christians, so that they might know that Jesus 
is the Son of God, that He has come into the world to proclaim the good news, that God is in the process of restoring creation and mankind to Himself, that Jesus has come to set us free from the bondage and the fear and the discouragement of living under the curse of Satan's rule, and instead to come to establish the rule of God one day here upon earth. And so Jesus has come really to meet our deepest need. And so as we look at Mark chapter 2, I, I want us to consider Jesus' authority to forgive sins and the implications of those things for our lives. But before we do look at that, let's just re review just a little bit where we're at as we move from chapter 1 to chapter 2. In, in chapter 1, Jesus' fame as a miracle worker just grows. You know, you see his authority over so many things. You see that his ministry is rooted in the Old Testament, that he is the fulfillment of that. And he comes, you know, and he's baptized. He's been identified with, with Israel and, and with God's people. You see him demonstrating his authority as the king over sickness as he heals so many. And not only that, but even over demons, demonic persons, spirits, if you would, had to submit and listen to his authority and do exactly what he said. And so last week we saw Jesus healing a leper. And, and not only that he healed him, but he cleansed him. He restored him to a relationship with God. So it was even more than just a healing. And then he told the leper, don't go out and tell anyone about this because Jesus knew what would happen. Everyone would flock to him. And of course the leper didn't listen. He went out and he told everybody what Jesus had done for him. And it, it had gotten so bad that Jesus, it says, couldn't even enter the city. He had to actually go out into the wilderness and be out uh, in these desolate places until sort of things sort of cooled down a little bit. And then we come to chapter 2, verse 1, and we see that after some days, Jesus was finally able to return to Capernaum. And, uh, and also, beginning in Mark 2, we see that uh, Jesus' popularity turns to opposition as well. In chapter 1, we see everybody just excited to see Jesus and just praising His name in one sense. But now in chapter 2, verse 1, actually all the way through chapter 3, verse 6, we're going to see uh, about five different incidences where there's growing opposition against Jesus. How the religious leaders are opposing Him, even to the point to eventually in chapter 3, verse 6, it says that they're trying to figure out how to get rid of Him. They're trying to figure out how that they might kill Him. And so Jesus returns to Capernaum, and according to verse 2, immediately people heard that He was back. Jesus is back in town. And so they just swarm to the house where he's at. And, and we see Jesus taking advantage of this opportunity to preach the gospel uh, to Jesus Christ to them. And, and this was not a healing service that he was doing, uh, but a sermon. And people were flocking to Jesus to hear what he had to say. And it's in this context now that we come to, to Mark 2, verses 1 through 12, where we'll see three things about Jesus' authority to forgive sins. Okay, first of all, that Jesus declares that he has authority to forgive sins. He declares that he has the authority to, to forgive sins, but also he demonstrates that he has the authority to forgive sins. He declares his authority, then he demonstrates his authority, and thirdly, Jesus evokes a response 
regarding his authority to forgive sin. Sorry, I couldn't think of a third D. So, you know, <laughs> it's just declares, demonstrates, and then he books. Just sort of blows it, but that's okay. We'll get through the passage anyway. So first of all, Jesus declares that he has authority to forgive sins. Verses 3 through 5. There's a lot of people, like I said, that, that show up at this house where, where Jesus is. As a matter of fact, it's so crowded that the people are spilling out into the doorway and actually probably out into the courtyard of the house. And there's a lot of people that's there, including scribes. And the scribes, as you might recall, are the learned men of the day. They were trained experts in the scriptures. And they had come to hear Jesus' teaching, sort of maybe check out the new rabbi and making sure that the things that he said were orthodox. But it's interesting that while there's this large crowd here, Mark sort of focuses in on sort of this obscure group over here. It's this group of five men. There's this paralytic, this man, kids, that word paralytic really means the man was lame. He couldn't walk, okay? So he's actually laying on a bed, and his four friends, probably carrying each corner of the bed, are, are trying to get him in to see Jesus. Most likely, they had heard that Jesus had healed people, and so they wanted to bring him in to uh, place them before Jesus and have Jesus heal him. Of course, they couldn't even get close to Jesus. And so it says that they go up on the roof of the house. Now, I can just imagine kids are thinking, really, on the roof of the house? If I climbed up on the roof of the house, I would get in big trouble by my parents. Well, that's because our houses have roofs that are built like this, right? You know, maybe some steeper than others, but still they're very pointed. And you wouldn't go up on the roof of your house. But in biblical days, actually the roofs of the house were flat. Okay, as a matter of fact, there were stairs that would go up to the side of the house, oftentimes. That would go up on the roof, and the roof would have some kind of like little fence around it or something to keep you from falling off a railing. And these men took their friend who was lame up on the roof of the house and it says that they began to tear the roof apart so that they might lower the man down before Jesus. Now Luke tells us that the roof was a tiled roof but it probably also had mud and some timbers and things like that so Jesus is here preaching just like I'm doing to, with you this morning and, and maybe there's dirt or mud or something that just sort of falls down on the ground and so everybody sort of stops and looks up, and there's this hole in the roof. Now, you can just imagine the person who owned the house, what they thought of this. But anyway, but there's this hole in their roof, and they lower this man down before Jesus. And, and we re read in verse 5, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, you can only imagine the four guys that are up on the roof, they probably had ropes on each corner, and they lowered the man down, so he's there in front of them. But they're up on the roof, and you can imagine them going, Your sins are forgiven. What are you talking about? We brought him to you to have you heal him, to make it to where he can walk. But whatever their expectations were, Jesus is addressing not this man's felt needs, his obvious felt need, but his real need, his, his deepest need, his most pressing need. You know, I mean, after all, think about it just a second. What good is it if this man can walk and yet then every member of his body is still an instrument of sin? What good is it if, if you restore the man to health 
but the man remains under the wrath and the curse of God. And so you see Jesus, Jesus gives grace. The grace He gives goes deeper than the grace that we really think that we need. The reach of grace is greater than we're prepared for. Jesus has a way of, of getting in under our guard of, of penetrating uh, to the issues behind the issues, of, of speaking not what we think we need, what we think we want from Him, but what we really need, whether we know what that is or not. And, and what we really need, what you and, and my heart really needs, is to be forgiven. You might not think that's your most urgent need. You may have, like I said, a whole host of problems that's occurring in your life. As I said, maybe you have a, a troubled teen or, or maybe you've made poor choices in your life and now you have financial difficulty that you're trying to, to deal with. Or like I said, maybe your doctor has given you some very terrible news recently and you think that's your need. And, and sure, we'd love for Jesus to come and to deliver us from our trials and, and you know very often, uh, in God's amazing grace, He does do that. But you might also remember the words of that great hymn that say, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. You see, the Lord loves to hear and the prayers of His children. And, and they love it, and He loves it when they call upon Him in their trials and with their burdens. And oftentimes He does deliver them, or He at least gives them strength to endure those difficult times when He sees that it's wiser not to answer their prayers the way they want, but to answer them in a way that would be much better for them. But there's a difference between bringing uh, to God our daily needs our, our, our need in the midst of trials as we walk through those dark valleys, that's one thing. But it's something else entirely to come to Jesus only when we're in, you know, when we have what they call foxhole faith. You know, that's, that's when the bullets, bullets are flying. That's when we've exhausted every avenue that we could. We've tried our best to try to fix the, the problems in our lives and, and we realize that we can't do it. And so, as sort of as a last resort, all of our resources have been used up. We have nothing else to give. Uh, we plead for Jesus to sort of get us off the hook by answering our prayers. That's a very different attitude towards the Lord. And it's in those moments, that's what we think we need from Jesus, is those things that we're asking for. But our passage reminds us that He's not nearly as interested in fixing our messes as He is and cleansing our hearts. We need to be reminded of that. That Jesus sees that we have a much greater need. What we really need is to hear in our hearts and our consciences the voice of Christ that says, My dear child, my dear son, my dear daughter, your sin is forgiven. Those may be some of the most precious words that we would ever hear from our Savior. Now, as we think about that, what is sin? You know, I think a lot of us could probably give a very technical definition of sin. But, you know, let me just uh, sort of clarify what, what sin is. You know, some people think it's just breaking the rules or the law. And, and it is definitely that, but it's more than that as well. The very heart of sin is telling God that He is not God. 
The very heart of sin is living as kings and queens of our own lives and telling God that he is not the king of this world or of our lives. It is when we want to live our lives the way that we want to live them and not the way that God has created us to live or commanded us to live. It is when we tell God to sort of get lost. You see, the, the law that Adam and Eve transgressed in the garden was that God is God and they were not God. The, the law that they transgressed is that God is the creator and they are creatures. But Adam and Eve wanted to be God or they wanted to be like God. And, and that is the heart of sin. They basically wanted God to get lost in one sense. But the problem is, it's not really a problem, but from our perception, the problem is that God doesn't get lost because this world is his. And he is the king. Whether we like that or not, he is the king who rules over all things. And if this world is God's world and we have rejected his loving rule over us, it makes perfect sense for him to be deeply offended at us and rightfully angry. It, it makes even more sense because he's good to punish us for our rebellion. Because God is good, he is just, and he punishes sin. And that's why sin is our greatest problem. Jesus knows ultimately our suffering will only be solved by dealing with the issue of our sin. You know, true forgiveness of sins in and of itself won't make man walk. It won't solve all the difficulties that he has in life. And yet, what the man really needed was forgiveness of sins. Because there is a time coming uh, of judgment when God will one day judge each person according to his deeds. And even just one sin is enough to warrant our eternal damnation because God is holy and God is just. So can you imagine this man's delight when he gets to heaven and he stands before God and God ushers him into heaven rather than casting him into hell? Why? Simply because Jesus, who is God's son, forgave all the man's sins. Wow. How awesome and glorious that is. You know, the Bible says, what good is it if a person receives all the fame and the riches of the world yet loses his soul? For such a person, this life is as good as it gets. Because as they go into eternity, all they have before them is hell. But likewise, for the person whom God has forgiven their sins, this life is as bad as it's going to get. Because all they have before them in heaven, or in heaven, is heaven and, and being in the presence of God forever. So that Jesus says that he has the authority to forgive sins. But how do we know that he has that authority? Well, that's where in verses 6 through 11, he demonstrates that he has that authority. And yet, when Jesus made this surprising claim that this man's sins were forgiven, it, it resulted in instant controversy, right? Look at verse 6. Clearly, the, the scribes were not impressed uh, at all, were they? Um, you could picture the scribes sort of being like... Uh, Statler and Waldorf, those were the two grumpy men on the Muppet show. Remember they sat in the balcony? That's sort of what the scribes were like. You know, nothing ever was good enough for them. They, they, they sort of looked down upon people. Their, their problem was their arrogance and their pride. They saw everybody else as beneath them. And, and so uh, that's where the scribes and the Pharisees were. And as they see and they hear Jesus in his actions, they are outraged. 
aren't they? They are offended at the audacity of this man who presumes to forgive sin. So they begin to grumble in their hearts and their minds. They don't say this out loud. They're just thinking this. In verse 7, why does he speak like that? Who does he think he is? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, look at their logic, okay? Point one, God forgives sins. And we know that's true. I mean, the Bible talks about that. In Exodus 34, other places, Nehemiah, you know, we see, even as the Lord describes himself, as he tells what his name is, who he is, he talks about how he forgives the sins of many, right? Uh, point two, though, the Pharisees, as they think about that, not only does God forgive sins, but they're also thinking Jesus is a man. And so their conclusion is, therefore, Jesus is blaspheming by claiming for himself a role and power and authority that only God himself possesses. Now, this is really, we're going to see this as we work our way through, Mark. This is the root of the problem that they have with Jesus. They really didn't have a problem as much with what he did as, as who he is. Their struggle with Jesus was his identity, that he said that he was God. Now, notice Jesus' response in verses 8 through 11. You know, he, he asked them directly. You know, he, he, he reads their minds. He knows exactly what they're thinking. And so, you know, it's funny, as you look at Mark's account, Jesus is the only one that does the talking, right? Nobody else really says anything. Mark either tells us what people are, are doing or, or he gives us the thoughts of others. But Jesus is the only one that's talking. And Jesus looks at these religious leaders and he says to them, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk? Now, I wish this was a Sunday school class because I'd love to ask you that question. I'd like to hear your response and see what you would say. Well, I would suggest you all just go ahead and give you the answer. To say your sins are forgiven is easier because there's no way to verify whether the true burden of this man's sin has been lifted from his person and cast into the vast ocean of God's forgiveness the moment that Jesus declares it. You can't know that because, you know, forgiveness is internal. It's, it's invisible. It, it can't be tested with our senses, okay? But a command to a lame man to walk, that is immediately verifiable. Healing is external, it's, it's visible, it can be tested. So what person would ever dare to make a statement like that, but to demonstrate that he has the authority to forgive sins? How would Jesus say, you know, I, I can show this. So Jesus now demonstrates that he has that power to heal. He turns to the paralyzed man and he says, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. You know, and what happened? He did. As a matter of fact, I realized this morning as Ryan was reading our, uh, our um, um, oh, I forgot what it's called, you know, after the confession of sins, or after, you know, um, as he was reading this passage, I realized I left out the best part. Okay. I, I included where Jesus said, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. But that doesn't tell us anything. What tells us that Jesus has the ability to forgive sins is the fact that the man did exactly that. He rose up, picked up his bed, and he went home. That should have been included in that. 
So Jesus turns and he speaks to him, and the man simply obeys. His health is restored, but also showing that Jesus has the ability to forgive sins. Now, I, I want you, as you're, you're thinking sort of of the implications of this, uh, I just want you to look at the way Mark structures these 12 verses, okay? Uh, to, and right in the middle of these 12 verses, in verse 7, at, at the middle, the center of this passage, is the logic of the scribes and the Pharisees. Look at it. As scholars uh, call it a chiasm, okay? It's sort of where everything sort of focuses in on this one portion of a passage. Now, if you could, just imagine these circles, okay? Like ripples in a pond, okay? That sort of come out from the center, okay? That's what we see in this passage. And let me just walk you through what these circles are. Um, on the outer ring, the widest ripple, verses, we see verse 1 and we see verse 12. The crowds come to Jesus and then the crowds leave amazed after, heard, after hearing Jesus what he did in healing the man. That's sort of that outer circle. Then as you move in in verses 3 and 4, you have the paralytic and his friends who come to Jesus who look for healing. And then in verse 11 and 12, the paralytic actually receives healing. That's sort of that next circle. Uh, then in verse 5, Jesus pronounces forgiveness, while in verses 8 through 10, he defends his pronouncement of forgiveness. That's the third circle. And then right in the center of the story, right in the heart of it, is verse 7 with the nice, neat logic of the scribes. Now, why would Mark put that in there? Okay, why would he put the logic of these skeptical scribes at the very heart of his account? Well, he does it to show us that they are actually making uh, a great argument, though they don't realize it. Okay, they're making a great argument for the deity of Jesus. Uh, follow the logic, if you would, once again. You know, they say only God can forgive sins, right? Look at verse 7. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus forgives sin. Therefore, what's their conclusion? They conclude that he's merely a man, and so therefore he's a blasphemer. But what they don't take into account is the fact of Jesus' healing. Uh, the, the healing demonstrates that Jesus is so much more than that. That he is the God-man, the Son of Man, the one our sins have offended to whom alone belongs the privilege both to forgive sins and to restore sins. And so Mark is highlighting the scribes' stunning blindness. Their, their own logic ought to have driven them to, to the understanding that Jesus Christ is God. But unfortunately, they are so spiritually blind that they don't see it. And unfortunately, some who are listening to the message today are in the same. They don't see that. But you see, Jesus, Jesus is the source of grace. He is the source of our pardon because Jesus is the Lord God whose law we have transgressed and of whose glory we have fallen short. And so Jesus wants us to see today, to know that he has the right and the power to not only heal the body, but also the soul as well. Unless you think that it's easy for Jesus to forgive sins, I, I would encourage you to come along to Calvary and to see the cost of that forgiveness of sins. 
that on the cross that Jesus bore our sin and our shame. He, he spilt his blood for us. And because he was the God-man, Jesus Christ, his sacrifice was more than just that of a man. If he were only merely a man, he could not have endured uh, the, the, the wrath of God. His sacrifice would not have satisfied God's wrath. But, but because he is the eternal Son of God, his sacrifice was infinitely worthy. His sacrifice was more than sufficient to atone for the sins of God's people. And that there will see the gravity of this situation. There you will see God's love when He gave His Son to die so that He could say to you and to me, Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. So that brings us to our third point, the response that Jesus evokes. Look at verse 12. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. You see, both within the crowd, there was both an internal and an external response. First, they were amazed. They couldn't believe it. They had never seen anything like this. But that resulted in them outwardly glorifying God and, and praising Him. But we also see responses of others as well throughout this text. You see the scribes who were angry with Jesus, and yet they did nothing, uh, such as try to put him to death, which they'll try to do later. But you also see the response of the man who picked up his bed and he left as a tangible demonstration of Jesus' forgiveness. But the real question this morning is this, what about you? How will you respond to Jesus' forgiveness? You know, there, there's almost something frightening about the manner in which Christians handle Jesus' offer to forgive their sins. Even though it's the greatest miracle to take place in our spiritual life, we often take it just sort of automatically, just sort of nonchalantly. Oh, yeah, Jesus forgave me of my sins. Do we not? Do we not sometimes just sort of look at it that way? And then we act surprised when the world doesn't take sin all that seriously either. You know, some of us this morning may be wrestling, even as Christians, with shame and with guilt. Our, our consciences sting us and we are condemned and, and we reproach ourselves as we think about the way that we have lived in response to God and to His commands. You know, sometimes we, we get it confused uh, the idea of forgiveness and the idea of feeling forgiven. The reality is, regardless of how we feel, Jesus Christ has forgiven us. Is He not, brothers and sisters? And we can take that to the bank. Even in those times when we are wrestling and we see our lives and we feel that guilt, we know that we have truly received forgiveness. There is only one place to go and only one thing you need to do. You must go to Jesus as helpless as the paralyzed man with no argument, no attempts to persuade, with nothing to be done but casting yourselves upon Jesus. It's really the same thing we see of this paralyzed man. You know, look at, look at verses 3 through 5. The, the lame man, he, he couldn't even get to Jesus on his own. He is utterly helpless and he is powerless and he can do nothing himself. 
It, it is his friends who place him before Jesus, uh, cast entirely upon Jesus' mercy. Brothers and sisters, that's faith. That's faith. And that's what Jesus says when he sees these men uh, lowering Jesus before him. He said, it says that Jesus saw their faith. It's, it's not doing anything. It's entirely trusting Christ to do it all. The faith of these four men who would stop at nothing to bring this man to Jesus, their faith was unmistakable and evident for everyone to see. It's their faith that draws from Jesus the declaration of the forgiveness of sins. And when you come to Jesus in faith, you will always find that His heart answers yours with more grace than you need. We need to hear that, brothers and sisters. Oftentimes we think that faith can just be a one-time thing. All we have to do is place our faith in Jesus and then we never have to put, put our faith in Jesus again. But the reality is we put our faith in Jesus every day. And sometimes we are struggling in our faith. Sometimes as we see our sin, as we see the way that we have disobeyed the Lord, the way we have fallen into that sin, once again we wrestle, we struggle, we question our standing before God. But all we need to do is once again, brothers and sisters, once again, come to Jesus. Understand that He is the source of our forgiveness. And you will hear in your heart and in your conscience the assurance of the gospel. My beloved daughter, my beloved son, your sins are forgiven. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you trust Him? You know, if you are here today or you're joining us via the live stream and you've never placed your, fr your, your trust in Jesus, your faith in Him, don't delay. Trust Him now. Come like this poor, helpless man, but abandoned entirely to the mercy of Christ. It's mercy you will receive. It's, you will not get what you deserve. Instead, you will get His forgiveness and His love. I wonder if when Jesus looks at you, does he see your faith? It is the only way to receive the forgiveness that he can provide. Let's bow our heads as we meditate upon God's word this morning. Jesus, we pray today that we might be like the crowds who leave and who are amazed that, that you forgive sins, that you have that authority here upon earth. Lord, may we leave this place glorifying your name and exalting you that you are the God-man who forgives our sins. Oh Lord, whether we are here today and, and we are your children, or Lord, whether 
it is someone who has never placed their faith in you. May we come today, O Lord, to trust you, to place our faith. May we come as this lame man, totally helpless, uh, looking to you, Lord, to forgive us. May we stand firm as your children in that assurance of your forgiveness uh, to know that it is done. It has happened that as we stand before you in heaven one day, we will hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant. But Lord, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done upon the cross. And he has made it possible, Lord, for us to walk in obedience to you, Lord, to, to, to glorify your name here upon this earth and to one day receive your reward. And Lord, may we take the crowns that we receive and cast them at his feet as worship and praise. For he alone is worthy to be exalted. Oh Lord, I pray, Lord, that your forgiveness would so grip our hearts, that the gospel, Lord, would so permeate our lives and our beings, that we would be compelled, oh Lord, to tell others. May we be like that leper, Lord, to, to share the good news of what Christ has done for us that others may know as well. Lord, we pray that you would fill up this sanctuary with those that now do not know you, but would one day come to faith in you. We thank you, O Lord, and help, Father, the one who is struggling this day with their sin, to know that in Jesus, forgiveness of sin is, is possible. We thank you. We pray this in your name. Amen.